looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. Welcome back to the show, guys. I hope you're having a good week so far. We've got a great episode in store for you. We have a buddy of mine, Shannon Ludlow, coming on the show. Shannon is the host of the Multifamily Journey podcast that centers around educating passive investors for syndications, and that's just what we're going to do today. So I've been on Shannon's podcast. He's now coming on mine, and we're going to talk about what passive investors should be looking for in deals and kind of some definitions that help them easier understand what's going on in the real estate world when it comes to investing because a lot of people have never done it before. Hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Give us a quick five-star rating, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It does help out the show and enjoy the episode. Shannon, welcome to the show, my friend. Uh, Shannon and I met a few weeks back. I spoke at a mastermind group he was in. Uh, Shannon also has an awesome podcast that I was a guest on, but uh, brother, go ahead and introduce yourself. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super pumped to be here, Dante. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the host of the multifamily podcast and we did have you on your, your episode actually was one of my most popular episodes. So Ooh. I think a lot of people, yeah, <laughs> it, it did very well actually right out of the jump. And I think a lot of people, they see someone so young like you and they get inspired. And they also, even for older people like me, I'm 42, they see a young guy that's 20 years my senior do this. And they're like, man, if he can do it, I should be able to do it. So yeah, but a great episode that we launched, you know, on my podcast. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to be on your podcast. Awesome. Thank you. So Shannon, tell us real quick, the listeners that have no idea what's going on here. So I put together syndications, you invest in syndications. Tell us what the name of your party of the passive investors are and what you guys do, really. Absolutely. So July of last year, 2019, I started a company called Fable LLC. It's a limited liability company with the intent of doing two things. One, actively investing in flips in my local market. And then taking those proceeds and rolling them into multifamily syndications. There's two, a couple of reasons why I've decided to do that. Number one, I love real estate like you do. I know you're passionate about it. And I love seeing you know something that's ugly become beautiful. And I get a lot of pride and joy out of flipping properties. I do. I love the fact that you can make money in it. But then you got that money and you've got to take the hit from Uncle Sam. You have to pay a lot of taxes, capital gains, tax, et cetera. But then you take that money and you roll into something that has a lot of tax shelter advantages, right? A lot of depreciation and things like that. And it's a long-term investment. And so I started researching on syndications and learning a little bit more about, you know, how it works for limited partnerships and learning what's a good deal, what's not a good deal. And I just, I jumped into it. And I'm right now I'm in four different private placements. My portfolio, although I haven't updated it, but there's two different private placements that I'm in right now that haven't closed yet. They're going to close in mid-October. Once I'm done with that, I'll be in a little shy of 2,000 units in a very short period of time. 
and I'm looking to scale beyond that as well. So I'm on the look for more deals and the more that I flip, because right now, you know, we're still at all time highs. I definitely believe we're at the peak of the real estate cycle, but I still think that this cycle has got a little bit more, you know, runway ahead of it, maybe a year or two possibly. So that gives me an opportunity for my active real estate side to flip a couple of properties and get into a couple of syndications. Hopefully your first one, man. Yes. I love it. So Shannon, you're basically what we call the limited partner. So you are the passive investor to a syndication. Guys like me go out and talk to guys like you. We raise capital and we put it into a value add deal. You get the higher ownership of the project. You get the quarterly or possibly monthly dividends. Uh, we make the, the money off the fees and the split after you guys get your preferred return. So that's basically what we're talking about. So guys, tonight we've got two sides of the coin. We've got the GP, the LP, the general partner, the limited partner, me being the general partner, Shannon being the limited partner. Now, Shannon, why did you choose the limited partner side and why not the GP side? Why didn't you want to get more involved? What do you got going on? Yeah. And I think that's a very good question, Dante. So, you know, I started, you know, listening to bigger pockets podcasts, like most of us, most of your listeners probably also listen to bigger pockets. And every week, you know, on Thursday, when they publish a new episode, there's a different strategy, house hacking, Airbnb, um, flipping single family rentals, whatever. And I just kind of had the shiny object syndrome and I was jumping all over the place. Now, now flipping that always felt natural to me and, you know, taking an ugly home and turning it into something that, you know, is beautiful. That definitely appeased me and that, that fits my personality, but I always wanted to build passive income. So everyone on bigger pockets talks about passive, this passive, that the more I researched it and the more I listened to people that do multifamily syndications, the more I learned that, you know, building a portfolio of 40 single family rentals is not passive. It's a second no. job. Yep. I personally, you know, I, I listen to a lot of Gary V. I mean, and Gary is out there saying, listen, do something that you're passionate about, but also have self-awareness. If you're not an expert at something, outsource it or, or try to find something that's truer to who you are right now in your place in life. So for me, I'm 42, as I mentioned earlier. I just became a father 10 months ago. I've got a, a little girl, you know, that's you know, bouncing around and starting to walk and everything like that. And then I'm also, you know, I'm a W2, I'm a working professional. Real estate investing is not a full-time uh, career for me. It's just not. I took the path of going through, getting a college education, studying hard, working hard, rising in the ranks, got an executive MBA, MBA from the University of Florida, go Gators. And you know, I took that path. And that's not something that's easy for me to give up. And so my entire life, I've been a working professional and I love what I do hear a lot of people on podcasts, maybe some of yours that they're down with the fire movement. I get that. I had shitty jobs in the past. I really did. And I definitely understand that, but I'm lucky in the sense that at least a job that I have right now, Dante, I love it. And so with all those things rolled up, I really just don't have time to go out, find a deal, negotiate it, renovate the property, find uh, a tenant, find a, a reliable property manager and then deal with the headaches that come to that and then scale to 40, 50 units so that I can replace my W2 income. So for me, it's a lot easier to find guys like you 
that are putting 100% of their blood, sweat, and tears into this strategy. And if I can find someone that's trustworthy, that's smart, that will take the money that I give them, put it into, let's say, a recession-proof investment, give me a decent return that will beat the stock market, and I get all the tax benefits, and I can still spend time with my, my wife, with my daughter, I can still excel at my job, then brother, I'm going to take that route. And that's basically what Sounds I'm like doing. a home run. Sounds yeah. like a home run. So, and guys just want to touch on real quick. So what Shannon is doing here is he's taking wealth that he's already built. He's taking money savings that he's already built in sums of 50,000, hundred thousand. I'm not going to go into those exact numbers, but he's putting those into real estate investments that someone else is passively or excuse me, actively taking care of. And he's in a passive role. And therefore, he's putting all this money in, but he's getting monthly, uh, quarterly dividends. He's getting quarterly payouts of this income, and he's multiplying his money. Um, it's it's wrapped up in these larger project projects, but in hopes of the business plan is implemented properly, then he's got refinances that are coming out. He's going to get a majority, if not all, that capital back. Keep his equity position in that project. He can reinvest that money while his money's. It's like double investing your money at the same time. Uh, it's a pretty powerful tool. Shannon, you know, correct me if I'm wrong there on any of that. No, I, I think you nailed it, Dante. I mean, for me, again, I want to find guys like you that I that are trustworthy. And then after I vet the sponsor and the GP group, then I look at the actual investment. Is it in a market that has significant population growth? Because that's one of the most Before you get into that, because yep. I want to talk about that. Let's just, sure. we'll, we'll break it down. So let's start with the actual sponsor versus the deal, which one you're looking at first. Then I want to get into the actual geographic where the deal is and the return. So start with the, uh, the sponsor versus the deal, which you're looking at. Okay, perfect. So from a, a sponsor perspective, it's almost like you're marrying the person you're investing with because most of the syndications, as you know, they're structured in three to five to seven to 10 year increments. Now, most of them are five-year increments, the business plan, but typically you can either refinance or they'll sell it within three to five years. But you're still going to be talking to this person on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis. So you want to invest that are trustworthy that you like. I mean, it's just like when you sell your house or when you buy from somebody, you buy or sell something from people that you like and you, know, you get along with. So a lot of this is personality for me. Uh, the other is that I need to see that they are not doing this on the side. There's been a lot of different investors that have paid money to some of these bigger syndicators that have a, let's say an educational arm and they take students, they, they basically train them on how to formulate a syndication. They have all the contacts and these new syndicators go out there and they'd want to buy everything they can because they're so anxious to buy something but they're still working a W-2 like me. Now, here's the one truth that all of your listeners to need to know. Nobody can circumvent the fact that we all have 24 hours in a day. Yep. No one can cheat that. So if somebody's working a W-2 like me, and they're, say, just putting in a minimum of 40 hours a week, how much time realistically are they going to spend looking after my $50,000 investment? or $100,000 investment, an hour or two per day, multiplied by five to seven days per week, whatever you wanna do, that's not enough. But someone like you, Dante, that has decided that this is something that you wanna do full time, 
I know that 100% of your focus and time is going to be focused on my money that I've invested. So for me, a hard stop is investing in uh, a GP group that they're doing this on the side. Now, that's not to say that some of these syndicators that are working on the side haven't made their LPs a lot of money. I'm just a conservative investor. It just doesn't fit my personal criteria. So I don't believe there's an alignment of interest. The other thing that I look for, and this is not true for bigger syndicators as you start to get to institutional money and stuff like that. But the other thing I look for is, is a GP group investing in a deal like me? Are they, are they alongside? Are they along for the ride? Is there alignment of interest financially? Now, there could be a good reason why the GP group is not investing in a deal. Everyone, myself included, has a limited amount of capital. If they're doing a lot of deals, and right now we are in the cycle, there's not really a lot of deals to be had, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Everyone's kind of just waiting to see what's going to happen with COVID. And also, we're in an election year. People want to see the first 100 days of the next presidency to see what kind of tax plans roll out and things like that. So if people are not investing alongside with me, that's not a hard stop, but that is something that I kind of keep in the back of my head. And then there's some other things that I get into as well. But uh, uh, the last thing I would just say is experience does matter, but it's also not a hard stop for me. Again, you're someone that I would potentially invest in a deal if it made sense because we've built a relationship. Of course. And I love your dedication to the craft. And I think you told me one time on my podcast, you devour like 200 books in a year or something crazy like that. 60. I wish it was 200 though. My wife would kill (laughs) me. Uh, (laughs) But but still 60. I mean, last year I read maybe 10 books and, and, you know, and so you're doing a lot better than I am. So those type of attributes, those are the type of things I look for in a GP group. Yeah. And and also something you mentioned, I just want to touch on as we go through, you mentioned basically skin in the game. You want to see that the GP's interests align with yours and they have capital wrapped up as well, because, you know, my partner and I, we say that we want at least each 50 to a hundred thousand dollars in each of our own deals. Um, because we want to show that there's an alignment of interest and we have skin to the game. So if we have a hundred thousand dollars individually, so 200,000 total in a deal, odds are we're not going to try our hardest to lose that money for everyone. You know, we're, we want to multiply. We don't just sit there in the GPC because that's what we wanted to do. We sit in the GPC for a few reasons. We love real estate. We love being in control of real estate. This is our hobby. This is what we do. That's where our passion is. So if we can control it, and investing at the same time, it's a, you know, best of both worlds for us. Go yeah, and I think, go ahead. No, no, you're fine. Please. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt for me, my perspective, my limited expectation as a limited partner is that the GP group, all of them, everybody involved in the GP group will at least invest the minimum investment required amount for yep. that private placement. So if it, the minimum is 50,000, I want to see that each member of that GP group has invested 50,000. Yep. So we're all got the same skin in the game. And so again, there's an alignment of interest. You're going to watch out for my 50, but in reality, as you're watching out for your 50, mine's going to be taken care of first because LPs get paid before the GP. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's the point behind it. So we touched on what you're looking for in a sponsor. Next thing you're looking at, I would imagine is going to be the actual MSA of where the deal is, or what is the second thing you're really looking at? I want you to break it down for us. Sure. Absolutely. So I really do like states that have very favorable 
laws with regard to landlords. So a state like California, it's very difficult to evict somebody when they Mm -hmm. stop paying rent. But in a state like Texas, Florida, um, you know, Indiana, some of these locations where I'm currently invested, it's a lot more friendly a climate for, you know, uh, syndicators like yourself, where if we go in there and people stop paying rent, you can get them out pretty quickly. The sheriff comes, kicks them out and you move on. You just have to do the turn, um, refresh the unit, put it on the MLS or whatever, and then get a new tenant in there. But I like uh, the Sunbelt traditionally has been that way. Whether it's right or wrong, it always seems like it's kind of like the, the, the conservative Republican states are like that. Conservative states, it's a lot harder to get people out like New York, New Jersey, California, yeah. uh, Ch- you know, Chicago. It just is what it is. Yeah, it is difficult. So we're looking at uh, geographic location, really, as far as where there's there's strong leadership to, favored towards landlords. Are you also looking at um, population growth, job growth, development growth in areas, or is that not something you look at as much? No, one hundred percent. So I think you definitely want to look into to that. If you just Google, let's say I, I live in Tampa, Tampa population. Google will spit out a number and you can kind of run some, you know, some analytics there to see if it's growing, it's decreasing, whatever. So let's suppose that I've got two deals on my plate that I'm considering to invest in. One of the deals has a population of, let's say, half a million people. The other people have got a population of, let's say, 100,000. You know, it's not too hard to say which one I'm going to look at, you know, in terms of that individual attribute or metric. And also, What's the growth potential? Where is it going? And so looking at 2017 to 2020, because a lot the population doesn't change significantly in one year. So you want to look over, let's say, a three-year period. Yep. What do those metrics and those growth metrics look like? And so for the markets that I'm invested in right now, I'm in a deal in Clearwater, Florida, which is, I'd say, a, a secondary market from Tampa. And it's got a lot of growth in that area right now. I'm also in Irving, Texas, which is just outside of Dallas. I love that, that uh, area right there because you're 30 minutes outside of a major MSA. A booming MSA. 100%. And uh, also Dallas is just, I mean, everything in Dallas has been booming for the past, let's say seven years. So everything in Dallas has kind of been picked off. So if you can get into those secondary or tertiary markets, you can pick up some deals. So the one that we're invested in there, I'm invested in there with other LPs, I think it's going to work out very well for me. And then Indianapolis, Indiana, I'm in big in that market. If you look at some of the, um, some of the, the, the financials or you look at some of the population growth or whatever metrics you look at, Indianapolis is almost top five every single time in terms of population growth, rent growth, um, all kinds of different things. and during the 2008 recession, they didn't have such a wild upswing and downswing like other MSAs like Miami did. Miami mm-hmm. was crazy. Even Tampa to a certain extent, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, those markets. So Indianapolis, Indiana is a great market, not just for multifamily, but also single family rentals. They're killing it over there. Yeah, that's great. A- after we're looking at those things, now are you looking at really returns and numbers on the property? Is there one more thing that you look at before that? Yeah. uh, So in terms of, you know, the type of deals that I'm doing right now, because I'm newer, I do believe in being hyper invested. And that's not just 
in let's say geographical locations but i do believe in law of averages and large numbers and so the greater the asset meaning the units the better for me so mm -hmm. i typically don't want to invest in something unless it has a minimum of 150 units because if 10% of people move out it's a loss you know it's it's a least still a least amount of hit yeah, exactly. So for instance, I, I gave this example when I was interviewing, um, I forget who I was interviewing, I think it was Jeremy Roll. We were talking about this. And so let's say I invested in a quad and I t have a 10% vacancy in a quad. Well, we know there's no such thing as a 10% vacancy in a quad. 25% of your rent yeah. is not being paid. Can I cover that? 10% of a 400 unit apartment complex is minuscule. Yeah. And a lot of these larger deals they can sustain uh, a 40% vacancy, meaning- Right, that's their break-even vacancy sometimes. 100%, so meaning, let's say, and let's just do the math real quick, let me pull up my calculator, but let's say you've got a 400-unit apartment complex, right? And mm -hmm. then let's say 40% of those people are not paying rent. That means that I, you know, and before the general partnership come to me, a limited partner, and say, hey, we have to do a capital call, because our business plan didn't work, something's going on in the world, people are not paying rent, there has to be 160 people that are not paying their rent. Yeah. That's almost unheard of, especially in you know, a secondary market like Dallas or Clearwater or Indianapolis. It's just very unlikely. So for me as an LP, I wanna be very conservative and looking at numbers since you asked Dante, I like the bigger deals. Okay. And as far as return standpoint, are you looking at equity multiple and IRR? Are those the two biggest indicators you're looking at? Or what were the, the biggest metrics that you're usually looking at when you're looking for returns? Sure. So in, from, in, in terms of returns, I'll probably say I almost always look at just the preferred return. If a deal doesn't have a pref, I'm not investing in it. Okay. I want to know that I get paid first. You know, there's a, at least some type of guaranteed return on the profits, either on a monthly or quarterly basis. The very first deal that I did was a, a quarterly distribution. The other three deals that I'm into, they're all monthly. And I'm mm -hmm. starting to see a trend, and just for your personal benefit, I'm starting to see a trend where more, more and more deals across my desk are going monthly versus quarterly. I know in the past, Quarterly was something that was, you know, I An guess industry standard, standard, really. Exactly. I, I'm seeing something different. And again, I'm kind of newer to this space like you, but from my perspective, from my vantage point, it, you know, I'm looking at the monthly. So I want to see a pref of a minimum of, let's say, 7%. Okay. And I'm hoping that that will be pretty, you know, again, an industry staple for the next several years. But 7%, you're beating the stock market. And then you throw in the benefits of the cost segregation studies um, that are passed on a pro rata basis back to the LPs based upon your initial investment. Then you're really, it's, it's just working. Everything is working exactly as you intended. Yeah. And that's not to mention the refinance, the proceeds at sale and anything after that preferred return, 70% of that. I mean, we're talking a good number. Exactly. So, you know, outside of the pref, 70-30 split, 70% goes to the LPs, 30% to the GPs is pretty standard. I know there's all kinds of different structures. There's a catch-up. There's, you know, and you talked about a little bit about the internal rate of return and the equity uh, multiple. So for me, 
I don't really look at those things. I mean, there's a million different ways you can manipulate the IRR, the equity multiple. I'm more of a cash flow investor. Any kind of appreciation you get, especially now since we're at the peak, it's going to be a minuscule. I mean, two of the deals that I invested in, one in Dallas and the other in Clearwater, the cap rates were so badly compressed. I mean, there's no way that on the exit we're going to make money on the exit, but but they both cash flow, which is crazy to think about. So the cap rates would have to decompress uh, some, I'm sorry, uh, compress further for us to make money on those. And both of those deals had cap rates below 6%. That's crazy. Sub which is crazy. X. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is nuts. Um, but, for, but for me though, honestly, you know, I know those are super low cap rates, but at the same time, let's consider my alternatives. What are my other financial investing uh, vehicles that I can invest in? I can invest in Vanguard funds. I can invest in my 401k and let someone else manage my money. I can invest in you know, bonds. I can invest in T-bills. I can do all these different things. But the returns you get on that are so minuscule. And the risk reward from the volatility of the stock market, it, it just doesn't make sense. So even though these cap rates are you know, highly compressed, I mean, it's it's just more of, you know, keeping my capital uh, in something that's recession proof. And if I make money on it, let's say three to five years, because both of those deals are five year business plans, then I'm I'm doing well. I'm I'm preserving my capital. I'm making a little bit of upside. But more importantly, my alternative is the unknown, the big unknown, ups and downs, up and ups and downs, and highly volatile stock market. So for me it's a little bit more predictable. Yeah. And, and keep in mind when you're investing in those Vanguard funds, uh, your Roth IRA, your 401k, all that good stuff, there's guys making fees off of your investments as well. Where when you're in the real estate, the real there's not really any fees because you're getting the preferred return. You're getting the primary return. The fees are just the split of the profits. So they're not taken out on your returns. Touching back to the quarterly versus monthly distributions, I think the reason why the industry is going towards a more monthly distribution standpoint is because one, simply, you get to hear from the GP more often. That's very comforting knowing that your capital's with someone, you're gonna talk to them 12 times a year versus four times a year. And and second, I think as investors, it's attractive to see more of your capital come back in a uh, more frequent time versus four times a year, you're seeing capital come back or you know direct deposits in your account 12 times a year. I think that's that's much more powerful. I don't know what your thoughts are. You know, I would agree with you. And I would also say to your listeners, from my perspective, again, you know, I've talked to probably 10 different GP groups, invested with three different GP groups. There is certainly something to be said about communication, getting back to people. So one of the GP groups in, in particular, and I won't mention their names because I always try to go, you know, a little anonymous here, but one of the GP groups, Dante, I'll shoot an email. It doesn't matter who I'm emailing in their organization. I get an email back in 10 minutes or less. Wow. And it doesn't matter how high I go up on the totem pole. That is impressive. And one of the things that they stress, and and I've actually talked to three different people in that organization. They're investor relations people and VP level on up. And they stress, you know, LPs keep the business running, which I appreciate. I've seen some GP groups where the GP group, they don't get, they outsource everything. When you try to DM them, call them, whatever, you're talking to their virtual assistant, 
you're talking to their executive assistant, you're talking to two or three or four, there's four or five layers until you get to the actual person that is managing my money. I think those guys have lost focus. They've had a lot of success, but since 2008 to now, you could have thrown a stone at anything and not known what the hell you're doing and made money investing in multifamily real estate. Now is where you need great communication to your point. Yep. And you get a chance to talk to the GP group on a monthly basis. And we also want honesty. If things are going bad, just say it. Things are sucking right now. We cannot lease an apartment to save our lives. We're trying to give out concessions. We can't pay our distributions. We'll catch up when things turn around. Just tell us what's going on. Yeah. Because it is an investment. And it and you know, when you do the marketing package and you put together pro forma. Throw it out the window once you actually are in the deal. That's just your best guess is what's going to happen. And there's That's a so old true. quote. Yeah, and, and there's a quote that I love. You know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And I feel the same way about pro formas. It's, it's, it's just all fictitious. Right, yeah. I mean, there's no possible way that all the numbers are going to fall as even as you place them on that sheet. It's just not possible. And going to what you're saying about you're able to contact someone, email anyone, they respond with you in 10 minutes. It's just like, you know, when I sell real estate, 90% of the game is picking up the phone. The agents that answer their phone are the agents that are successful. And it's so true. It blows my mind sometimes when I call these other agents that I'm working deals with and they just never pick up the phone versus the 10% of agents that pick up the phone. It's like, those are the high performers. Those are the guys that are getting work done. And that's why my phone's glued to me because I'm always trying to answer it within reason always trying to answer it just because more gets done that way, you know, and especially with the lead based service, someone that's comparing me with another agent, if they can call me and I answer, they call another agent, they don't answer and they have a question. I'm going to be the winner there. Yeah. There's one, there's one well-known operator. I won't mention their name, but they brag about how they outsource everything. And it's absolutely true because I try to talk to them um, about coming on my podcast and I actually bought a couple of products from them that they offer. And, uh, you know, everything is a virtual assistant. They outsource mm -hmm. everything. Even the educational platforms that they're selling to people like you that want to learn how to syndicate deals, et cetera. This person doesn't even teach it. Yeah. But he's all true. over the marketing. He's talking about his educational platform, but he's got his students teaching well, I just dropped it. It's a, it's a he. He's got his students teaching. I, th I think we know who you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, you know, as a limited partner, again, I'm, I'm a working professional and I give this guy all the credit in the world. He's done very well for himself. But as a limited partner, I'm not parking my capital with this guy. Yeah. I want to park with people like, like you, Dante, or others that I've got to know that are pulling, you know, everything they've got into these deals, their blood, sweat, and tears, pull, calling all the favors, doing everything they can do, researching underwriting correctly. And then, um, you know, also conservative underwriting too, because that will save everyone a lot of headache and time and, you know, and in tears by underwriting conservatively, having um, very, very conservative assumptions on your pro formas. And, and that's probably the very last thing we should probably talk about as it relates to what I look for is the assumptions. Yeah. I, I mean, you hit it right on the head there, which everything you just went over right there with, you know, I look at it like this. If you wouldn't do it with your own money, you wouldn't do it with someone else's money. 
But when you're using someone else's money, it's a totally different ball game because you can't take risks that you'd take with your own money. It's just straightforward how it is. Touch on that last piece that you're looking for in a deal. And then uh, I want to get into two other sections of the show. 100%. So just from an assumption standpoint, when you're looking at the marketing plan that comes over your way, usually it's like a 58 page or 50 plus page, you know, uh, PDF document. And they've got the executive summary in there. They've got all the numbers. They've got the returns. They've got the business plan strategy, et cetera. And you got to look at a couple of different things. One of the things that I look at a lot is the debt structure, the equity to debt. How much uh, is the GP group raising from people like me, the limited partners? The reason why that's important is let's say you've got a 70% loan to value or 70% is going to be financed through, let's say, agency debt, Freddie, May, um, Freddie Mac, excuse me, Fannie Mae. And then 30% is going to be raised from equity, private equity, limited partners like me. Well, you know, if things get rough, people stop paying rent. There's another pandemic. Maybe there's one next year and it's a lot worse than COVID and people are losing their shirts. That asset's going to have to cover the operating expenses and that 70%, whatever that monthly debt service is, it's going to have to cover it, right? So the, the, the less amount of debt that you have on that asset, the better. Now, let's say I've got another deal and it's like, say, 60-40, right? They raised 40% of private equity and 60% is debt. Well, that means that the monthly debt service is a lot less, which means there's less likelihood that I'm going to get a capital call from that GP group. So if things go bad, you know, it's just a little bit more conservative. When I started, that wasn't something that I knew to look for. And on my second and third deal, I started looking at that. And luckily, both of those deals had a debt to equity ratio of less than 70%. And last week, I just had the master of passive investing on my podcast, Jeremy Roll. He's been over 100 private placements. He's currently in 60 right now, which is insane. And he tells me- Lives off the dividends. (laughs) Yeah, he's a Wharton School graduate. I'm plugging my podcast hardcore right now, but man, you guys got to check that episode out. But he told me that's one of the main things that he looks for as a passive investor. What, what's the debt on this asset? You know, when, when am I going to have to contribute more capital than my original investment? And so he looks at that loan to value ratio. He, I think he, he said on my podcast, he won't get into a deal if it has more than 75%. And now, of course, I'm not an expert. I'm not plugged into the pulse of what the the debt markets are doing right now. Yeah, 2080. I don't even think anyone's doing that anymore. Yeah, so whatever it is. Yeah, so maybe 75% is the new norm. I don't know, especially with COVID. I imagine it is, it's going to be a lot more strict. But that's great. I, I think that's great. So it keeps GP groups out of hot water. It, and, and also what it does is it keeps less experienced investors coming into the market because now they need more capital. They need 25% instead of 20%. And that's something I'm seeing in the real estate sales side of things. You know, I had all these people that are, you know, trying to scrape pennies together just to get the 20% down. And we just got bumped up 25% and they're like, Oh, I'm out. And that's okay. I'm fine with that. You know, take out the less experienced guys, take, you know, leave the deals for us. Absolutely. And then also, I think I heard actually last week that some of the agency, uh, debt service financers, they're, they're requiring six to almost 12 months of reserves. Reserves, yeah. J- 
just in case something like this happens in the future because of COVID. So, you know, that's one of the things I look for. And then the other things real quick, just to wrap this part of the segment up is uh, the, the rent growth, right? I want to see less than 3% in the first couple of years. I don't want to see aggressive numbers, especially in year one, when you're trying to execute on the business plan and you're kicking people out, you're not getting that money back because you're renovating. Your occupancy is going to be going down. Your rents aren't going to be going up. Yes. Yeah. Hell no. Yeah. So you're not going to be able to turn enough units to get that, let's say greater than a 2% bump. So the, the couple of, um, the couple of, uh, you know, syndications I invested in, I think they had either one or 2% for year one, and then they were conservative and they never went above 3% for the balance of the, uh, the business plan. And I've seen some other deals where they wanted to get a 5% or 6% rent increase after, you know, they've, they've executed the business plan and turned the units. I'm like, that's really, that's, I don't know. That makes me uncomfortable. That's either these apartments that you bought really deferred maintenance and they need a lot of work or you're kind of fudging the numbers and trying to make this deal look better than it is. Because remember when they're saying five or 6% rent growth, that's everything else is calculated upon that for the NOI. So your IRR is going to change your cash and cash is going to change everything. I mean, Everything is going to change, so you got to watch. We, out we run that. the we run the first year with zero percent increase on on rents because in the first year, I'm sorry, you're not really increasing rents. The only way you're increasing rents, quote unquote, is if the units don't need to be turned at all, they don't need to be renovated at all, and then they're just sitting below market rent. Also, keep in mind, people who got aren't month to month; they have a year rent in place or a year lease. So typically, you don't even get the opportunity to raise their rent within a year to six months anyway. So we just hit it at zero just to be safe in that first year and be again, conservative. Then that second year, depending on the market and what we're looking at, where rents are sitting, we are looking at roughly a 2% increase in in rents. We also try to stay at least half a point to a point above whatever that increase is on expenses. So if we're hitting it for 2% on income, uh, increase in income, we're hitting 3% on expenses or two and a half percent in expenses increase. Um, the, the only thing that we're really floating with at that point is when your debt stays the same for at least five years, unless you have interest only that first year, it's all about being conservative and we can go on for hours about that. But I mean, some of the underwriting I see blows my mind and is completely whack with these assumptions they're making. Yeah, 100%. And the last thing, well, two more things. Um, I also look at what type of financing they have, like in terms of how long is the interest rates fixed? Is it floating? Is it a fixed rate? And I like to see a 10-year fixed rate if possible, especially yeah. on the five-year business plans. Because if, let's say in year five, the, the cap rates continue to just, you know, let's say they decompress, right? And you want to be able to have that, you know, that ability to you know, carry that debt, keep on paying the operating expenses until the climate changes, and then the cap rates compress, and then you can make a little bit of money and exit later on. You want to have that flexibility. So it's just giving you a little bit more ammunition, uh, you know, in your back pocket. And then the last thing that I look at is um, just making sure that that everything checks out in terms of the renovation costs. They're not over uh, or under uh, budgeting for the renovation costs. I see if I see like a $2,000 turn per unit, that's bogus. You know, yeah. it's usually right around five to $8,000 per unit, kind of looking yep. at that. So just making sure that they're not being too aggressive and because and, you think about it, you replace, let's say you replace a Formica countertop, even if it's, let's say, I don't know, seven or eight linear feet, you're looking at close to 
you know, a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars right there. There's almost the whole budget right there. Yeah, for changing Co- countertops. Correct. Exactly. So you just gotta pay attention to some of those different things. And there's a million different ways you can skew the numbers, but I won't pretend that I'm an expert. Um, I'm getting better. I mean, my W two, my as a working professional, I do. I'm in construction, so I do have a lot of knowledge, and I've got actually connections in uh, multifamily that actually renovate apartment complexes for syndicators and, and uh, family offices and things like that. So I've got some resources to kind of look and run these numbers by other people, but I am getting better, but those are just kind of the main things that I look at right now. Yeah, that's great. And l- last part I want to go over before we go into the last section of the show is what type of individuals should be the individuals like you that should invest in syndications? Oh, that's a good question. So number one, I think you need to have patience right? And out of all the different strategies in real estate investing, I think that investing as a limited partner is probably the slower way to grow wealth, but I think it's also the safest way. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is, you know, you're going to get, let's say on average with an IRR, maybe let's say a 12% or 10, let's just say call it 10% to be conservative, 10% return. But if you invest in a single family rental, you may get a 15% return on that investment. However, what are you giving up for that 5% delta? For me, again, at my age, as a working professional, a a new father with a wife and everything like that going on, and also time for me just to be myself outside of all these different things I got juggling in the air, right? I don't have time for that stuff. So for me to go out and buy a single family rental and all the things I mentioned earlier, that 5% delta is not worth it for me. So you're looking at working professionals, attorneys, doctors, physicians, um, you know, MBA people, type people, business people that they're, they've, they've drank the Kool-Aid in going to college, you know, going, working up the corporate ladder or their business owners, whatever. They love the idea of real estate, but like me, they don't want to be a landlord, Dante. They don't have time for it. Yeah. Maybe they want to, but that's just not their comfort level. And so to find somebody like you or other syndicators that are trustworthy, that know what they're doing, give you some capital, test you out, see how you do on one deal. Maybe we'll do another deal if that worked out well and just keep on keeping on. And that's really what I think other people are doing. So people like me, accredited investors, um, you know, they're looking to place capital somewhere that don't want to be on the active side of real estate investing. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Let's uh, switch on over to the other section of our show called The Curious Cues. I'm going to throw some questions at you and I want to get your answer on them. Sure. First question is your favorite podcast you like listening to besides mine or your own? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I never listen to my own because I can't stand to hear my own voice. I know it's I'm weird. one of those guys. Yeah. I, I just can't do it, man. Um, probably right now, I'd say the multifamily takeoff. They're one of the okay. reasons why I started my podcast, all those guys, Mike Ty, um, Sean D. Martell, and Richie Summers, they're all great guys. They're out of San Diego, and they're very much like me, although they're on the active multifamily. They're actually like you. They want to be syndicators. And when they interview guests, you can hear them ask the questions because they want to know the answers. They're not just asking a question to get an answer. They're right. curious, and they're trying to learn. So I, I get a lot of value out of their podcast for sure. So check them out. Yeah, that's good. Favorite book you enjoy reading that you just keep finding yourself talking about, thinking about, or even reading again? Ooh, that's a good one. I would say The One Thing 
by Gary Keller. Gary Keller I yeah. love, 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 love the one thing. And I actually found out about that from Bigger Pockets. And, and I'm figuring, you know what? Somehow Brandon Turner's getting some type of points off this sale or something. He's getting commissioned. Yeah, yeah. But no, the, the book is awesome. And it's really changed my mindset, um, you know, working at my W-2 and also outside of that, focusing on the one thing that will give me the greatest return on my time, my money, and my investment, not just from a professional standpoint, but also my personal life as well. What's the one thing I can do to make sure that my wife knows that I value her and I love her or that I, I'm contributing to the household or to my family or to my daughter? I think about those things and it's really helped me change my mindset. I love it. That's great. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome. Oof, that's, the, that's a good one, man. I would probably say finally nailing down a strategy that actually feels good. Because like I said earlier, I, I was chasing that shiny object. I was wanting to get into Airbnb and, and, and then I wanted to do house hacking. I wanted to do single family rentals. Wanted to buy small multifamilies like quads and triplexes. And finally settling into really where I am in my life. I'm, I'm no spring chicken anymore. I don't have, I probably have less run, runway ahead of me than I do behind me. And multifamily syndications or passive investments, where I am on my income for my career, et cetera, um, you know, it just makes sense. And I got to give a shout out to the mastermind that I'm in that you came to speak to, the, the Rat Race to Financial Independence. It was because of my mentors, Diego and uh, Felipe, that really, they challenged me to focus on something that was true to my identity and to myself, as well as listening to some Gary Vee stuff as well. But <laughs> I finally found a strategy that makes sense for me. That was Good. very yeah. difficult. That's great. I love that. I love that. Favorite non-real estate related hobby? Oh, I love college football. I'm a huge college football fan. Um, I love the Florida Gators. My wife, unfortunately, I'm married to Seminole. Her team sucks. <laughs> and she knows it. She doesn't want to admit it. So every, every year uh, during college football season, you know, we usually travel up to Tallahassee for a game and we go to, to uh, Gainesville for a game. But I'm huge into that. I, I look forward to that every year. And I look forward to sharing with my daughter, you know, just the pageantry and the traditions that go along with college football. So it's something I'm very passionate about. That's sweet. That's all. I like that. That's new. Newbie advice you give to someone that doesn't want to be a landlord, but wants to invest in a syndication. I think it all starts with education. And yeah. it's, this is 2020. There's a million great podcasts to listen to. Yours is fantastic. Dante, I've listened to a lot of your episodes. And, um, you know, mine as well as others, a multifamily takeoff. There's so much information out there that's free. A lot of people are just jabbing, 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 giving you good information. And then they're going to hit you with the right hook and ask for something later on. But that's okay. So long as the content they're throwing out there is, you know, it, it makes sense and it adds value to you. So that would be my answer. Awesome. And where do you see yourself in 10 years? In 10 years, I see myself still working at a W-2 because again, I've invested so much of my life. I just can't see myself being an entrepreneur. It's just not natural to me. And I see myself being in probably over 50 private placements at that point in time. Every year, I plan on investing whatever flip profits I get into at least one or two syndications per year. And you also combine that with the distributions that I'm going to pile up and invest in another 
uh, multifamily syndication or private placement. And then the money that I save from my W-2 to invest. So it's just going to be a snowball effect. And I hope to create generational wealth for me and my family. And, uh, you know, I'm, and this is a long-term commitment for me. This is not a short-term get rich scheme or the strategy where you can make a lot of money very quickly. This definitely is a long-term play, but it's conservative like I am. So it fits my personality and my personal financial goals for the future. That's great. I, that's a great, great answer. And something to kind of touch on that. So when I was actually out two weekends ago speaking at the mastermind, did my presentation on syndication. One of the guys pulled me aside after one of the guys in the audience. And he, he said, you know, so I, he's like, I got a funny story to tell you. He's like, when I was younger, I remember going to one of my friend's houses and it was the biggest house I've ever been in. And a bunch of wealthy individuals lived on the street and everything. And I, uh, I asked his dad what he does. And he said, I'm a corporate worker, but I also invest in syndications. And as soon as he heard that, he just like started doing research on syndications and he figured out this guy, he's like, he's told him a bulk of what he does is invest passively in syndications. And he just lives off of that and builds wealth off that. And that snowball effect refinance comes around, keeps his position, but uses those funds, puts it in the next one. And you're just like, it's like a tree branching out as you in, keep investing this, this money. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually had two people on my podcast so far, Travis Watts and Jeremy Roll. Both of them are full-time passive investors, meaning they don't flip. They don't invest in single-family rentals. They don't do Airbnbs. They just invest in private placements. Yeah. Travis has been in over 40 private placements, but Jeremy Roll has been over 100 easily wow. for him. Easily 100. That's insane. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Shannon, dude. Great episode. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for making time. I know it's, it's pretty late in the evening, so I appreciate you doing this. Um, where can people connect to you, find out more about you, ask you questions, or even listen to your show? Drop it all. Absolutely. So thank you for that, Dante. So they can go to the multifamilyjourney.com and all my contact information is there. Or you can go on to Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify and just Google you know, the multifamily journey and just check out my podcast and uh, hopefully you guys get some type of value out of it and keep on listening to people like Dante. I mean, this guy, he's going to be an up and comer and I'm so pumped to see where you go in your career because uh, you're dedicated to this thing. You're doing your podcast, you're getting your message out there. And I, you know, I, I know you're going to be a huge, huge success, Dante. So thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm truly honored. Thank you. And thank you for the kind words. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.